0: On this episode of China Unscripted, the Chinese Communist Party is at the center of an international criminal conspiracy involving money laundering, drug trafficking, and espionage. And it's all going down in Canada? Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Gnaizda. And this episode is sponsored by Daily Peanut. The news can be a tough pill to swallow, That's why Daily Peanut gives you a daily dose of news in equal parts humor and substance. The link is in the description. And joining us today is Sam Cooper. He's an award-winning Canadian investigative journalist and author of the new book, Willful Blindness, how a network of narcos, tycoons, and CCP agents infiltrated the West. All right, Sam, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Definitely. So in your new book, uh, Willful Blindness, you kind of talk about this um, reverse opium war in a way that China is waging against the West. Uh, So for context, broadly speaking, what's happening?
1: That quote, the reverse opium war, actually came from a a very good law enforcement source that really helped me stand up some of the the findings with documentation. And the observation was uh, for, for students of history, they know that Uh, The gentleman traders, as I call them, from Scotland, Jardine and Matheson, uh, were involved in shipping tea from China to the West and making their money. But as I say, they made their fortunes bringing the opium into Hong Kong and Canton. And uh, really through corruption, they enriched people there. They got very rich. And uh, after, you know, the local population uh, started to suffer, uh, Chinese authorities in those days started to take it seriously. And and pushed back on the british and this led to uh, the opium wars where the uh you know the summer palace was ransacked i won't carry on the history lesson too long everyone knows it but this led to what the chinese communist party calls the 100 years of humiliation this is in their propaganda now and you can almost i would say uh some people would say that there there are people in Beijing that aren't really that sad that fentanyl is racking Western cities, and so this is an observation from law enforcement or intelligence that uh, at a high level China is making huge money from uh, from fentanyl. It's made in the factories. Uh, it's coming west. They could stop it if they wanted to, but they're not. So what's the problem here? And as I dug into the the book. Uh, got deeper into my research, I found that as hard as it is for Westerners to believe, there is a level of direction at a high level in the Chinese state of these transnational narcotics cartels. There is, uh, whether it's corruption, offering protection at a high level to uh, drug traffickers that are making money uh, and and cycling it back in trade-based money laundering to China, or whether there's uh, actual intent, and that would be, you know, Chinese intelligence operatives happy that uh, Western cities are suffering uh, deaths from fentanyl, and China is making money. Some of these questions are still open, but uh, to me, uh, it is proven beyond doubt that at high levels in China, there's corruption where officials are involved with uh, fentanyl cartels, and in some cases, giving direction. I'll finish up by saying, you know, some of the more Aggressive uh, intelligence analysts or people from the DEA have already made the case that uh, Hezbollah, which is essentially an Iranian state-sponsored uh, crime, does use drugs to weaken Western cities. And these these same people would would say that uh, China is doing the same. I haven't gotten there exactly yet, but I do I do think that China is complicit. Uh, there's an omission of enforcement. So you could say it's, it's a type of war in reverse.
0: Well, you know, it's, it's funny that you say that um, people are, are shocked that maybe the Chinese Communist Party knows about this. Maybe, maybe they're behind it in some ways. Because, like, if you look back at the opium war, there was definitely high-level government involvement in that. But, you know, there's no way China could be doing that today. It's almost as if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it.
1: I say that from the perspective, and I get into this in the book, that in some ways, I was still a product of my Canadian or Western education. We are taught that governments don't deal with uh, with uh, uh, weapons traffickers, drug traffickers. But, you know, and I don't think in the modern era in the West, they do. Uh, maybe setting aside some very, you know, black ops and in, involving some intelligence agencies there's not too much interaction. But... For me, it was a, a mental leap to, to to get to the point where what my sources were saying is that at a high level within the within the party in Beijing, there is this direction of drug cartels. And again, I found uh, in my book I Canadian police wiretaps established in a way this fact. During you know, a, a, a triad war that was rocking Macau and spilled over into Vancouver. Yes, uh, Canadian police heard on a wiretap, uh, an official in China directing uh, essentially a truce among triads. So for me, I always say uh, I'm not American. Uh, My father told me sort of that I'm from Missouri, you gotta show me before I believe it. Don't just tell me. And I found the evidence from my own eyes. But you're right, for for students of history to understand that uh, at a high level corruption does occur between state leaders and crime lords, yeah it's not too much of a leap once you dig in
0: and you said something just now that was very interesting there was a triad war in macau that spilled over to canada uh how you know they're not not quite next to each other
1: (laughs) they're not next but uh what i tell people that i i stumbled or backed into this high level geopolitical espionage story by looking at casino money laundering and in vancouver uh, the level of uh of money laundering, we're talking about you know narco's, you know movies, hockey bags of cash for the Canadians that will be watching this audience. Uh, sorry, the, the, this show. We've got a million dollars, you know, at the at the low end, a hundred thousand dollars in twenty dollar bills coming into a casino, and so this is this is drug money laundering that was allowed by BC government uh, casinos. So why was that happening? I discovered that back in 1997 the government raised betting limits in bc casinos which had been very low and they introduced the game of baccarat which is the favored form of gambling for uh chinese uh economic fugitives high level party operatives in macau so this is macau money laundering that was happening you know for a long time between china where gambling is illegal macau and hong kong this is how corrupt officials get their money out of China by using loan sharks and gangsters. And then this was transplanted onto the west coast of Canada. So that is how Macau style, or or what is called in Canada now, the Vancouver model of money laundering is actually the Macau model. And that's really a a big theme of my book.
2: Could you just walk us through how that system works, how the Vancouver model works of money laundering?
1: Yes, uh, I, I say it's, it's incredibly complex, but uh, incredibly simple in, in another way. In a simple explanation, as we know, uh, citizens of China have a, export, a capital export limit of $50,000 per year. We also know that uh, at the top end in, in China, it's a lot of corrupt officials and people that have gotten rich through corruption that have uh, the majority of the capital in China. So many of them want to get that money out. They can't do it uh, legally with those export controls. So they have to go to organized crime. This is the Macau or Vancouver model. What you do is you go to your local uh, gangster in, in Shenzhen, Wuhan, Shanghai, and you say, I need to get money to uh, New York City, Vancouver, Melbourne. I'm gonna put down uh, you know, the equivalent of $100,000 US. It's put into the underground criminal bank in uh, Wuhan. And you say, I'm going to travel to uh, Las Vegas or Richmond's River Rock Casino or Crown Resorts in Australia, and a gangster is going to meet me in a parking lot near the casino and uh, pay me out my funds. So uh, that, in simple terms, you put a credit down in China and you travel west, whatever city or casino, and get paid out. You gamble, and uh, we could go on and on and on, but in simple terms, for it to work uh, so brazenly in Vancouver, uh, they literally would allow people to carry in a hockey bag with $500,000 to a million dollars in $20, you know, bricks of $10,000, $20 bills, buy your casino chips with no problem. And then you cash out in a higher denomination or a check. And uh, you can see quite easily, once you have a check, you put a down payment on a home, it could be just a you know, a rundown little shack in Vancouver that would still cost you two million, but you start laundering and, you know, more drug money to renovate it up into a mansion. And that's how you launder money, Vancouver style.
0: So you're saying uh, the local authorities, Vancouver authorities know about this.
1: Absolutely. Again, uh, as as hard as it is for for us to believe and for me to believe as a Canadian, I thought we were an upright law abiding country the authorities knew clearly. The police knew, the government ministers knew, the regulators knew, everyone from the casino cash cage to uh, the VIP host who treated that traveler from uh, Beijing like a king when he came into the VIP salon. Everyone involved at every step in the way in BC knew or should have known, not should have known, they knew that this money was coming from loan sharks. And what, what's a loan shark? Uh, they're called cash facilitators in the sanitized BC government language. These are people that beat their beat their customers if they don't get paid back in time. The customers, in order to secure their loans, they'll sign over, uh, you know, the pink slip or the ownership papers to their Mercedes, to their home. Uh, you know, the loan shark will know where their daughter goes to private school. These debts are enforced by killers, and uh, BC's government knew and did nothing for years.
0: Well, if this confirms that my opinion about Canada has been right all these years. So how does the, the, the drug trafficking tie into this? Because what you said in that right now just kind of describes like money laundering, but there's also drugs.
1: Right. So this comes back to these underground banks, which, uh, you know, it, it, it's not limited, of course, to uh, mainland China citizens. Uh, we see this ancient form of banking. It's known as Hawala in the Middle East. Uh, you know, it, 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 it exists in many cultures but it's a huge form uh, uh, of underground banking and finance in China because as my, my hosts know that there's a big distrust to the government in there eh, among citizens of China uh, and, and, and the people that control them, the authoritarians, there's distrust there. So people are very used to hiding their assets or the fear that they'll be taken away willy-nilly. So uh, the underground banking, you. Uh, the Chinese citizens, whether they're a corrupt official, a drug trafficker, or a computer programmer, for them to uh, get some security outside China, they must use that organized crime bank. Those banks are built on decades of heroin wealth. This is organized crime at a very, you know, deep and powerful level. And uh, it's run essentially through family banks, or, you know, at a high level, you could compare them to Mafia banks and other cultures, it's very family related. So the bank in Wuhan is related to the bank in Richmond. On both sides, it's drug money. Deep, deep, deep pockets of criminal money. But that what could be legitimate money in China that needs to get out is facilitated by the drug banks. So you put the credit down in China, you arrive in Richmond, and you're getting paid out with cash drug money you have to have professionals that will launder that money. You have to have the casinos that will look the other way, the real estate industry that will look the other, the other way. But that money is going on a loop back to China to fund more drug imports. That's where that opium war in reverse comes in. So that really the drug money, uh, I call it, it's almost like it's fluid. It's a, a leverage to get money of all types around the world moving, and it facilitates the shipment of drugs around the world.
0: You know, just for some broader context for, for our audience, you know, we talk a lot on the show about uh, the Chinese Communist Party's unrestricted warfare, that the Communist Party considers itself at war with the West and drug warfare is a big aspect of this. And it's funny because uh, last week we had on the show Rosemary Gibson who wrote a book called China Rx. And she was mentioning that, you know, while all of this Chinese fentanyl is winding up in the United States, I don't I don't know what the fentanyl situation is in Canada off the top of my head. But uh, so while there's this opioid epidemic being fueled by Chinese drugs, same time china controls a lot of the the global medical supply chain and has been cutting back on the amount of um medicine that you give people having overdoses they've been cutting back on that so you kind of see like this multifaceted drug warfare uh that you can't really you know like as you were saying earlier it's hard to it's hard for us to imagine that that you know our governments would be doing something like this so how could the chinese government be doing something like that but the reality is this is warfare
1: at some level, uh, I, I, I have seen enough to, to judge that through omission of enforcement, through corruption, that is, uh, officials that regulate and could shut the fact, the fentanyl precursor factories down at a moment's notice if they wanted to, but uh, are making so much money from the pharmaceutical industry, and through corruption, we know some of them are making so much money from the illicit fentanyl industry. It doesn't matter. Uh, all of those channels are profitable to China. So if they were uh, good faith partners with, you know, Western governments, if they weren't involved in something, you know, whether you call it gray zone conflict, asymmetric war, unrestricted war, people are are comfortable with different levels of terminology. But what is occurring and what cannot be denied is there's some there's sort of a there's a conflict that is below armed conflict. But there are strategic elements to it. I'm one that uh, I don't always judge that uh, the people over in Beijing have everything all figured out. They make mistakes. There's so many actors involved, many self-interested that it would hard, it would be hard to see just a you know a computer level uh, efficiency to this uh, gray zone or asymmetric warfare. But it's occurring, and again, I come back to the point of what I call sort of my more aggressive sort of intelligence analyst sources do say if Hezbollah wants to harm the West using drugs, it's not a huge leap to to judge that China, some in China may as well.
0: And now you also mentioned this, which is just it's like you pulled a thread and so many things came unraveled. Uh, This also ties into the uh, what's happening with the real estate market, in Vancouver, driving up the housing prices. And I imagine that's making a lot of uh, residents there upset.
1: It is. And uh, you you said that you're not exactly sure what the fentanyl situation is in Canada. I can tell you that uh, compared to West Virginia, Vancouver uh, is the second uh, highest level of harm in North America. I, I used to report from the epicenter, that's the downtown, the east side in Vancouver. Again, as a Canadian, I I would never have thought that I could see such a place with such literally war zone type uh, conditions of uh, addicts so devastated by heroin and fentanyl. And uh, yes, in the book, I found that, uh, look, Chinese transnational cartels have a very strong base of operations, especially in cities like Vancouver and Toronto. They're making so much money. This underground banking that I'm describing that both facilitates a huge flow of money from China, some of it legitimate, some of it illegitimate, but all mixed in with organized crime underground banking, that money is just bursting to the surface uh, in Vancouver. So the illicit money is, is mixing in with the illicit, uh, the banks, the casinos, I'm not going to call them illicit. <laughs> They've proven themselves to be illicit businesses, currency exchanges. are are entirely corrupted in some some areas of Vancouver. And this has to have a major effect on uh, Vancouver real estate prices. Uh, My example or my data point here is this has led uh, through some of my reporting to a commission of inquiry into money laundering in BC led by a BC uh, high level uh, judge. And in his interim report, he said, money laundering is a huge problem in Vancouver. It's tearing the fabric of uh, democracy and society. We haven't heard his final report yet, but what I judge from that, because I reported on these issues, is uh, hot money, when it comes in, in in large volumes into a city, it chases out good money. It raises the real estate prices. And so the businesses, the good businesses, the citizens that are working hard to pay taxes save for their children's university, they're being pushed out of the center of this, what, what we have to call a narco hub city. And that, People, of course, people are up in arms, and they should be about that.
2: You wouldn't really think of Vancouver as a narco hub city.
1: You wouldn't. There's so many. There, there's so many uh, ironies and, and mind-blowing uh, findings uh, for me in the process of reporting this book. And it's true. Uh, I I had to go back and look at how what we call the uh, the tycoons of Hong Kong started to buy large portions of a uh, Vancouver real estate in the late 80s. This coincided with the arrival of triads that are very related to the tycoons and a flow in of uh, heroin and uh, that the real estate and the drug money can't be separated in my analysis. Uh,
0: so just again, uh, a lot of these casinos, they're not just privately run casinos. A lot of them are run by the government, Correct.
1: These are BC lottery corporation casinos. And uh, it, it's shocking that a government casino, again, I tell people in Las Vegas and Macau that jurisdictions much larger, much more known for casino activity, you could not have that brazen level of uh, drug money laundering going into those casinos. They have credit systems. They, uh, they're uh, in some ways, I'm not gonna say Macau is not more uh, connected to organized crime because there's more organized crime in Macau, but still you can't have the appearance of a hockey bag of 20s or whatever the relevant currency is in Macau going into the casino. They're a little bit more, I would say, you know, smart than the officials in BC. And yes, these are casinos that my, my research showed once the, the game Baccarat and higher bet limits were introduced in 1997, that coincided very well with the arrival of the triads from Macau and Hong Kong. And uh, the money laundering that was accepted by the local police and B.C. government just rose exponentially from that point. And uh, I, I tell people I never stopped being shocked at the, the brazenness of the criminality that infiltrated the casinos in B.C.
0: The number of people that must have their fingers in the pie is is insane.
1: It's insane. And, uh, how can I say that? I, 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 have well-placed police intelligence sources, well-placed, uh, civilian intelligence sources. Uh, I have documents myself that say that the transnational organized crime kingpins brag of their special relationships with Canadian officials. I'm aware of high level reports, which point to wide scale, uh, widespread corruption in DC. And I believe them. I, uh, I, you know, I believe what I see with my eyes, and that is Vancouver, you know, to to pull the camera out. This is the capital of uh, supercars in North America. It's not a, a capital of finance, legitimate finance. It's a city of empty condos, McLarens, Lamborghinis, and Ferraris, and uh, casinos run by the government and really run by organized crime, I believe, at some level.
0: Well, so, Sam, why are your sources coming to you? I mean, you're you're a great guy, Sam, but... Why aren't they screaming this from the tallest mountain?
1: That's uh there's probably two, three, maybe even ten answers to that. But I, I would say for uh, the American friends, Canada is a, a society that's really built on privacy and politeness, and that is leveraged by uh nefarious actors. There's a big uh, you know, there's again I come back to we have the education and expectation that Canada is an upright country. But what my reporting and some others have shown is that it has become a home for transnational crime because there's such privacy, because uh, law enforcement in some ways is inhibited inhibited from cracking down on some of the most wealthy and powerful uh, transnational narcos in the world. So why are they not screaming? They will lose their jobs. I'll give you a quick example. Uh, in, uh, the, in my book and in this Commission of Inquiry I've talked about, an our CMP investigator in uh, 2012 came out and said, uh, we, the casinos are accepting bags with $500,000. They're not even reporting it as suspicious. They're just recording it as a large cash transaction. He went on to say, any average person on the street can tell you something stinks about that, and yet it, it, it's still occurring. We believe sophisticated organized crime is using BC casinos. What happened? He got his hand slapped by the minister uh, responsible for gaming in D.C. And it appears that his superiors, who, uh, by the way, believed his story, uh, told him or others, uh, no, you know, don't don't speak out again. So there's your answer.
2: This is like the next
3: Narcos or something,
2: right? Like, how is this not a Netflix TV show? Narcos Canada. Yeah.
3: (laughs) Someday.
1: It is. It is Narcos Canada. And I, I tell you, uh, you ask, why did they come to me? Uh, I've been, you know, when I was sort of a younger reporter in Vancouver and trying to understand why people from my generation couldn't afford a home, I started looking for the reasons. Uh, I had to understand that offshore money coming in, it was a sensitive topic in Vancouver because, again, perhaps Canadians are more politically correct and powerful interests in the city said uh Uh, It would be uh, xenophobic or the R word, Mm. I say, point to another country and say, you know, a large amount of money is coming from said other country and influencing local real estate prices. You can't say that. I I just, uh, I'm one that I was going to take the slings and arrows and and say, I'm sorry. I was taught that the truth is the truth and uh, we're a multicultural country I have friends of uh, from all backgrounds, and the truth has to be reported. So, as I put story after story together, some of these people in government that may have felt muzzled or may have felt the media was muzzled, then started to deliver uh, more confidential documents.
0: So, you're preparing for the uh, accusations of racism.
1: I'm not preparing. I'm well well accustomed to to the accusations. Uh, my book, in the latter chapters. Uh, gets into, uh, and again, I'll say not to paint myself as a victim, but I I the chapter is called Strike Back Hard, and I showed that uh, safety masks during the pandemic were collected uh, at an industrial scale through Chinese consulates across Canada, and surprise, some of the people involved in the casino money laundering were very active in those collection and shipping efforts. I did a story showing those connections, and uh, I did face an organized campaign uh, using the R word towards myself, sending petitions out, uh, ideas were to crowdfund a lawsuit against myself uh, for some sort of hate. And uh, none of it was, uh, well, let me just say the lawsuit was uh, not successful. But those attempts to uh, silence critics of, first of all, the regime in China and uh, to try to make it look as if they're uh, coming from a dark place can be very successful in, in 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 inhibiting investigative reporting or the media in Canada and uh, I'm afraid other countries, but Canada seems to be uh, uh, very susceptible to it.
0: Well, hold on, I gotta talk, touch on something there. You, you talked about it's known now that the Chinese Communist Party covered up the coronavirus and used those weeks to hoard medical supplies from around the world. You're saying the local government was involved in helping? china hoard those medical supplies
1: no i'm saying that my investigation showed that some of the uh some of the people that are involved in united front activity as you know this is china's uh, foreign sort of interference uh efforts to control diaspora communities some of those people were uh of course involved with the chinese consulates in gathering the ppe and i showed that some of the casino uh actors, or to use the right word, uh, a high level loan shark was involved. I showed the connections between the Chinese Communist Party, the United Front, and organized crime suspects, and how these people were involved in PPE networks and connected in various ways. And so I'm not saying the Canadian government was involved in it anyway. I'm saying that uh, China using the United Front uh, was involved. And uh, I, I would say my story at least, according to a Canadian security intelligence former veteran, w- was probably uh, the first time in Canada this network had been exposed to such a level. And as my book uh, explains, uh, there was an effort to strike back hard against that investigative reporting.
2: I mean, I guess if you have this underground network that's being used to funnel money and drug money, all like why not use that to funnel, you know, PPE back to China? You're at least a patriotic. Drug lord.
0: I mean, it doesn't even sound like it's that underground.
2: <laughs> no, that's true, too.
1: Well, no, but I mean, that that's an excellent point. This is all about it's not it. I, I have to hammer this. It's not just about drug money. The drug money, the organized crime becomes, uh, you know, uh, uh, just like a bank. It becomes a trade network. It is so interrelated with uh, factories in China, with shipping in China. That it's a channel of, uh, uh, you know, sending safety masks. You cannot, again, this is a point I make in the book. Because of this corruption, in some ways, you cannot separate large portions of China's economy from organized crime. So of course, it makes sense that uh, if they're very active in British Columbia, you can't separate real estate and casinos from organized crime because those are the most, you know, apparently used vectors of this underground or you know, almost above ground form of finance.
2: You talk in the book also about um, the fact that Vancouver as a port city is very useful to these um, drug cartels or these loan sharks, uh, the underground banks. And then you also talk about uh, human trafficking that comes through. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure,
1: and uh, just a quick data point. Two weeks ago, a, a fentanyl super lab was uh, busted by the Canadian federal police in uh, just a suburb of Vancouver that's very related to the areas I'm investigating. Police said that it could produce 10 million fatal doses of fentanyl per week. Whoa. 10 million, that's enough to kill a third of the Canadians. And uh, this gets to my point, that the precursors coming in from factories in China are pressed up in labs, whether they're in mansions, single homes, or warehouses. Vancouver has become a crucial hub for that fentanyl production and a transshipment point. And so uh, people that are watching this interview in United States, Japan, Australia, have to look at Canada for responsibility. The city of Toronto suburbs, the suburbs in Vancouver are very responsible for sending fentanyl around the world. The port of Vancouver, just like ports uh, on you know, the coast of Mexico are important both for trade coming in and for fentanyl precursors coming in and for this underground banking cycling of money going out. So if we're talking about ships, we're talking about legitimate trade items. We're talking about precursors hidden in the bowels of the ships. And of course, sometimes we're talking about humans being trafficked as well from the southern coast of China. It's a it's, it's a big issue. The, what I call the fentanyl kingpins, these would be the people that are bigger than El Chapo ever was, the people that are making the most money off of heroin and fentanyl. They have been most responsible for human trafficking into Canada's West Coast. And many of these people would be, uh, you know, people trying to get a better life, some of them underage women that are trafficked into prostitution. This is the, uh, you know, it's all dark, but when you're talking about underage females, some of them with gambling debts being trafficked into Canadian cities and then south in the United States, it gets even more dark.
0: You know, I know there's there's um, there's been a movement to label the Chinese Communist Party as a transnational criminal organization. And just the more and more I hear, just that seems like a very accurate label.
1: There's a very... Uh, I believe his name is Garneau, a very, you know, respected journalist in Australia that that spent a, a lot of time in, in China. I believe he, you know, he's made a, a similar observation, if not exactly the same, that at a high level uh, in the party, those connections to organized crime, to triads, are very strong. Therefore, is it that much of a leap to compare them? Some would say, some would put Russia in the same category of, you know, if there's that level of collusion, it's a racket. The gangsters in the racket, the officials in the racket, mm-hmm. they're all in the same racket. Uh, is, uh, you know, uh, is the Politburo uh, involved in organized crime? I can't say it that, that blankly, but we can say that, uh, you know, people from the Politburo have been involved with loan sharks and organized crime.
3: I mean, if you go specifically like back to the origins of the Chinese Communist Party, what Mao Zedong had said, and this is, and he said it, he wrote it, that that what we, the Communist Party, want is for the scum of society to take the lead in creating uh, a, a China run by the Communist Party. In other words, he was recruiting criminals, or what he called the scum of society, to be part of the upper echelon of the party. Because he needed those people in order to do things like kill the landlords and suppress the intellectuals and infiltrate the KMT so that his Chinese Communist Party could gain power. So, like, if that's how the Communist Party started, it's not that big a leap to think that these elements have continued to play a role for the last 70 years that they've been in power.
1: I agree. And David Mulroney, Canada's former ambassador to China, I I always uh, rely on authority when, when making uh, you know when, when putting paragraphs in a book, and I went to him and, and asked, you know, can it be true that uh, the party used organized crime in Hong Kong, you know, used the United Front to expand? And he said there's no denying the connection from the earliest days, as you say, of the party till now. The, the Chinese Communist Party will co-opt and use any tool, For their ends and uh, how does it work at a very simple level if you are a high level gangster and you face uh, uh, they want you to go do something in australia vancouver new york or toronto they they will get you on a death penalty you know it it is illegal and you can be killed for dealing drugs in china so they get that on you and then say well you want to live your you want your family to live it's time for you to go abroad I looked at a case uh, in my book, Lai chang who's a very familiar figure to uh, experts on China, former Most Wanted Man. He says he was sent to Hong Kong and uh, told to report back on the democracy movement and Taiwanese intelligence. He then ran to Canada, and we'd be, uh, I think, naive to believe that you know he wasn't interrelating with intelligence in, in some way once he arrived in Vancouver, even though he was running from the party at that point.
3: Wow. I mean, just the idea that the Chinese Communist Party at a high level and like their court system and everything is sending their most talented criminals abroad to go do criminal activity, right? It's even worse than what Cuba did when they sent a whole bunch of prisoners they released to Florida. But in that case, they were just releasing criminals to the United States. Here, it's more like the Chinese Communist Party is releasing criminals and then giving them a specific direction for, you know, gathering intelligence on dissidents or, you know, getting involved in this and that like it, that's that's an insane level of pushing criminality abroad.
1: It is, and again, uh, for for uh viewers that are thinking that's a leap too far, look, we the FBI said uh last year cyber criminals were trying to hack into uh, you know, world institutions that are trying to you know, get a vaccine for, for COVID-19, and organized crime in China was being used to try to hack in and steal that intellectual property. The FBI said China has joined that. Uh, I, I think they said, you know, uh, uh, very, let's just say, shady group of nations that will use organized crime. And so whether it's releasing your, your most uh, violent and cunning gangsters into other cities and using some of their drug proceeds whether it's allowing, you know, fentanyl precursors to go other countries without cracking down or cyber hacking, it, it is all forms of co-opting and using organized crime.
0: I mean, last year, the U.S. shut down the Chinese consulate in Houston because they felt it was a center for criminal activity. There
1: you go. I you know, I don't need to say anymore that, you know, the the People's Liberation Army operatives, uh, uh, very present in US and uh, Canadian cities and uh, I show in my book they're very present in casino networks. And so casinos, uh, real estate, art those those sometimes can be a front for raising money for you know more politically uh, aimed activities such as bribes or influence donations to, to political parties in the West.
3: You mentioned art. Can you just explain what you mean by criminals using art?
1: I look at a well-known, it should be better known case uh, in my book and explain how it helped me to understand uh, this espionage side of the Vancouver model. There's a Macau casino uh, and developer uh, tycoon who allegedly, also uh, you know, a high-level triad boss, was nailed by the FBI on uh, something like $19 million worth of transfers into New York City area. He allegedly had corrupted former uh, head of the United Nations, John Ash, who is not with us anymore, and a a related official, Uh, the case is that 19 million flows into the United States from abroad. Some of it goes to Las Vegas casinos, some of it is for art and for real estate, but some of it is used to bribe officials, such as the two UN officials. And so when we're looking at these high-end luxury goods, they're very sort of. They can be uh, gray or black markets. They can be good stores of value, but as I said, they could also be. You can look very much like a decadent, corrupt official involved in buying real estate or art in New York City, and at the same time, uh, through the you know, and through the, through the backside, you can be bribing officials, and it's a good cover.
2: Yeah, it's interesting that you talk in the book about how when. These kind of like tycoons start coming over or the the triad people start coming over to Canada and they claim refugee status. They say, you know, they're persecuted by the Chinese Communist Party. But then, you know, there's photos of them with consulate officials and with, you know, provincial like B.C. officials and things like that. It's it's kind of mind blowing.
1: It is, and it's it's absolute textbook. Uh, the Big Circle Boys is the gang that was very related to the, the Red Guards and uh, became, uh, you know, really probably the most prolific triad outside of China. And almost every case we looked at, or I looked at, when they would land in Canada, they would say, oh, I, I'm for democracy. I had a factory that was printing uh, pro-democracy T-shirts in Guangzhou, and that's why I'm on the run. But as soon as they arrived, uh, you know, they did hook up with consulate figures. One of them, who I point to, uh, joined a pro-democracy society in Vancouver, run by a high-level Canadian politician, who just, for some reason, this Canadian politician always seemed to turn up in photos with RCMP suspects. And so, what it points to is, there's, democracy is used as a, you know, a, a billboard but it's it's very clear that uh, they're not they're not fans of democracy. They're working with the party in both criminal ways and my book found in espionage ways. Once established in in Canada,
3: maybe they were just fans of what Mao Zedong referred to as the People's Democratic Dictatorship.
1: The, <laughs> I hadn't heard that slate. I hadn't seen T-shirts of that one either. But uh, yeah, they you know, they, they've got a story and it's almost comical how often they said, uh, I ran from China because I'm for democracy. And as soon as they arrived, they were found to be working with uh, with gangsters and uh, in some cases, consulate officials.
0: Well, I think what your book does so well is showing how everything is connected, you know, human trafficking, drug trafficking, espionage. And what kills me is, you know, there's there's really a very fine line between um you know triads pla and the chinese communist party itself and yet you still have like american or even taiwanese companies being like well you know we'll 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 do business with this private chinese company making semiconductors with them like that that can't be a national security issue they're they're private it's companies totally
3: private company that that that's
1: one that always uh that always Breaks my, uh, breaks my head when I try to figure it out. Uh, in Canada, the example is, uh, you know, two, two Canadians were kidnapped. This is state level, you know, hostage diplomacy. And, and yet there are still people that, that want to deal like w- with this as if it's a normal state. And my example that I can now tell people is, yes, so you're, you wanna, you want to set up a trade deal at a high level, with a country that is using trade to move, uh, you know, money, illicit money, to human traffic, and uh, to for some, you know, through corruption, to facilitate drug trafficking around the world, and it all winds together with the whole ball of wax trade. You know, is infected by this dealing with criminality.
3: Are the, you know, high level Canadian elected officials who are doing this? Are they doing it because they're just ignorant, or is there more to it?
1: Some of them have to be uh, corrupted. Some of them have to be uh, undeclared agents of uh, of foreign states. Uh, look, my book explains the case of what's believed to be the worst, if not one of the worst, intelligence uh, breaches in Canadian history. We have the federal, the RCMP's... Uh, former uh, head of intelligence for the whole national force, who was basically, you know, helping the highest level money launderers and gangsters in the world evade detection, according to the allegations. This is Canada's top police intelligence official, allegedly enriching himself from a gangster's money launderers. And uh, we, or my sources asked the question, you know, could he have been misdirecting canada's federal police force from investigating chinese organized crime chinese corruption chinese influence the same with iran so that that points to one case of what looks like a very high level compromise and uh, i looked at a number of politicians in the book that do appear um well we'll say that they don't appear to be acting in canada's interest so who's are they acting in?
3: it breaks my heart because when i think of the royal canadian mounted police i think of due south
1: dudley Do right now. Yeah.
3: <laughs> That's
0: what I think of. Well, so what does this mean for the Five Eyes Security Alliance?
1: If you talk to some of my more cynical sources, they would say that Canada, again, I hate to say it, is, is in a bad position because it has become a bit of a weak link. I think uh, everyone to this point, not everyone, people that are watching closely would say that New Zealand would be probably the most endangered of infiltration concerns that they were starting to hew a little bit toward Beijing and away from the Five Eyes even. Certainly uh, some in Australia feel that way. But I think what my book shows is the, the danger of compromise in Canada, if not equal, uh, is a concern. And you have to ask the question, uh, the other Five Eyes have said Huawei does not do business in this country. No, they're not going to run 5G because intelligence says that Huawei is a, you know, a military intelligence firm. We just uh, saw news today that uh, Huawei was declared a military, uh, essentially corporation by the U.S. government. So you can't do business with it. The U.S. government goes further and further to to blocking a military intelligence vector as they see it, and yet Canada hasn't hasn't taken that step at all. So you have to ask why is it naivety is it ignorance or are there some people that are could be in a you know a worse position than uh willful blindness or ignorance
3: well if you if canada you know catches these these high level you know canadian politician criminals they should just send them abroad
1: send them to uh send them to
3: send them to china
1: (laughs) (laughs) well yeah i wouldn't wish that on uh you know, we, we laugh, but there there's a person uh, who was a tycoon, who was in a, a hotel in Hong Kong. He was, uh, according to the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and everyone uh, at a high level, abs- you know, taken in the cover of darkness. Uh, his female bodyguards were overpowered by uh, Chinese intelligence, and he's somewhere in China. We don't know if he's dead, and al- dead or alive. He, he wasn't only a Chinese citizen. He's also a citizen of Canada, and I believe Antigua. So uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't wish that on anyone. Um, I hope we can find out if he's alive someday. His name is uh, Jian, Zhao Jianhua.
3: Yeah, I remember we did a, an episode about him. And the thing that stuck out to me is that he, like, he had decided that he only wanted female bodyguards.
2: Right, that guy.
0: Yeah, I think that influenced the thumbnail decision, <laughs> which influenced how many views it gets. So I know what the thumbnail for this episode is going to be.
3: And well,
2: Shelley hates me. Well, okay. I want to ask Sam about um, you mentioned New Zealand and uh, Australia mm. briefly in the Five Eyes. You know, a lot of the things that you talk about happening in Vancouver sound very familiar in other parts of the world, like Melbourne, uh, with the real estate money. Uh, when we were in, we were in New Zealand two years ago, and Auckland was also crazy in this way, where it seemed like there was a lot of money flowing in. Do you have a sense of whether
0: and we couldn't get any. New Zealand politician to speak to us.
2: That's true, too. Like there was just when we were in Australia, like Australian politicians were starting to speak out about Chinese Communist Party influence in Australia New Zealand. It was just like nobody wanted to talk about it. Um, Do you get the sense that this Vancouver model that you talked about is being implemented in other parts of the world?
1: Without a doubt, uh, Australia and uh, Vancouver, so Melbourne and Vancouver. The pool of whale gamblers, organized crime, is uh, it, crossed, it it's not exactly the same, but uh, my research showed that many of the whale gamblers, active in Vancouver, were of course active in the Australian casinos. We saw bombshell investigative reporting out of Australia, I believe Nick McKenzie, who I cite in the book, showing where Z, a relative of Xi Jinping had flown into Australia to gamble. Uh, junkets connected to organized crime were also connected to sex trafficking also connected to political influence also connected to the united front we're facilitating that activity in australia and of course it's just you know in a different city it may look a little a little bit different but the model is the same so especially vancouver and australia uh almost match exactly new zealand uh I don't think the casinos are quite the same it may take a different form but uh it almost seems the political element of uh of influence is the bigger concern in new zealand
3: well i remember in auckland there were like junk houses going for two three million dollars right and then like at the time it was kind of like oh well this must just be all the influx of chinese money but now i'm like rethinking that as maybe that was actually a lot of it organized crime money that's coming in into Auckland as well. But we wouldn't know because no one from the government would talk to us.
1: they are a little bit more shy than the, the Canadian officials, but not too much. But you're right. It You know, it, again, 50,000 export limit is on the China side. For that money to get over to Auckland or Melbourne, the same underground banking and crime model has to be working
0: Yeah, there needs to be some way for these rich, corrupt Chinese officials to get their money out of China. Though it is interesting. I'd always thought about that as like, these are officials who um, don't trust the system in China, are afraid of getting uh, taken down some anti-corruption purge, and so they're trying to get their money out of China. But from your book, I, I get the sense that this is also... Part of this, you know, asymmetric warfare, unrestricted warfare. That there, there are reasons why this is happening, not just for some official protecting their own interests or assets.
1: I think that's exactly right. That that is the right conclusion. I, I come back to saying, you know, China, uh, the Politburo isn't a supercomputer. They make mistakes. So there is corruption. There are so-called naked officials, you know, running away and, uh, you know, sending money to their family members abroad. So corruption is part of it. But let's remember that uh, there is some intentionality. People are sent abroad once they're caught doing something bad in China. Maybe it's time for you to go set up abroad. Uh, you know, don't forget, we have your, your mother and father are still alive here. So you're going to do what we want you to do. So, of course, you know, the Li Changxin case, it, it, it's a good case in point. He ran away once, you know, news broke of corruption involving the Politburo, or very close to the Politburo. But he was involved in intelligence. He was corrupt. He's both at the same time. And I, I, would, I would argue that, uh, you know, that, that's a good model to look at it. You could be working for Chinese intelligence and be self-interested, uh, be, a, you know, different areas of agency But uh, so what do we draw from that? It's all bad for the West. It it may be bad at some time for Beijing. It may be good at some times for Beijing.
2: Do you have a sense of how this is affecting like the diaspora, Chinese diaspora communities in Vancouver and Canada?
1: Yes. Some of my, uh, many of my best sources come from the Hong Kong Canadian or Chinese Canadian communities. And, they would say that optimistically, you know, the large majority uh, left because they didn't want anything to do with the party. Now they're living abroad, enjoying democracy, uh, pursuing their dreams. And there's a fear that there's sort of an increasing level of control through the United Front where we can have, you know, people being run by the consulates surveilling or harassing or meeting in sort of counter-protests. Uh, democracy activists. And I I point to a case in my book where people uh, who were uh, just in a church in Vancouver, Hong Kong Canadians praying for peace during that, you know, the real summer of upheaval 2019 in Hong Kong. And uh, they were surrounded by uh, about 100 people waving large red flags. And, uh, you know, very intimidating. These Hong Kong Canadians had to be escorted by police to safety. And they... Literally, I don't say allegedly, I, I have the the video evidence. There were people with those red flags rushing up and taking their photographs when they left the church. So the natural fear is these photos are going to be used, uh, you know, sent back to the consulate so that we can use them and leverage family members in Hong Kong or in mainland China. So I would say that there's a, absolutely, there's a big, uh, there's a conflict in the diaspora where you have people that say they're they're for democracy, they're for the country where they live. And there is a, you know, a, a significant, hopefully minority. Well, I mean, I, I hope it's not growing beyond a minority of people that are very supportive of the party and are being used by the party. So this is playing out in diaspora communities in Canadian cities like Vancouver, Toronto, and I'm sure around the world.
3: That's just awful to like you flee China because you're from Hong Kong or you're you know, Uyghur or Falun Gong, and then you get surveilled uh in Canada or in the United States by these like party connected people. So like you're never really free from that.
1: It's terrible. We we've heard in, in in uh Canada's government we have a Canada-China relations committee hearing evidence from uh Uyghurs or Hong Kong Canadian Chinese Canadian dissidents saying exactly that. They're saying we don't feel uh, free from surveillance and harassment in our own country. Uh, by the way, why don't you block Huawei 5G? You haven't done so yet. That will be used to spy on us. And, uh, you know, the Canada's government is not doing enough. This is the case that they make uh, my sources in the community make to me. And uh, I think it's fair to say it's the... You know, I put that argument forward in the book. Not enough is being done in Canada. We know in the United States that they're going after uh, the covert fox hunt operations. We know they're going after the PLA operatives. In Canada, we don't see the evidence of uh, prosecutions. But we do know Canada's uh, security intelligence service is being increasingly public about the risk. And I would say uh, I'm I'm playing the role of uh, uh, an independent uh, free journalist in sort of uh getting information from my sources and intelligence and telling a wider uh spectrum of society about this growing risk in canada
2: do you see any signs that the federal government is starting to take this more seriously it's a hard
1: question because i really wish i could say yes i can say that uh you know my book has been out for about one and a half weeks and I can say that I, I do sense, you know, a bit of a groundswell of sort of popular uh, acceptance of the book as, as you know, uh, an engaging, uh, you know, case. And, uh, you know, it, it's, you know, facts and evidence, high level sources telling a rather incredible story. How can this be happening in Canada? And yet it is part of my, uh, you know, part of my narrative again is, you know, this was hard for me to believe. I had to prove it to myself. I had to go beyond thresholds to to be able to write that, yes, the party and organized crime at a high level are working together. And that's a bad thing. It just, uh, I don't think, uh, let me put it this way, at security and intelligence, even, uh, you know, there's a lot of well-meaning and and, uh, well-read politicians in Canada that have made the case that this is a serious threat to democracy, to society. But we haven't taken the steps in Canada that uh, for example, Australia or the United States have taken. So what's the holdup in concerning Canada? That's my question.
0: So what is the solution?
1: There's a simple solution. Again, uh, well, nothing is simple, but there's a blueprint in front of Canada's Parliament. The Security and Intelligence Committee has said Australia is an exemplar. Australia and Canada you know, very comparable uh, in some ways, you know, both with a sort of Anglo-British sort of uh, initial diaspora heritage, and now very, you know, multicultural and cohesive in some ways, and yet under attack in some ways from hostile foreign forces, similar-sized economies, fairly similar laws. But Australia, in the past two, three years, has put very vigorous foreign interference laws in place. Australian federal police are, you know, very effective in working with United States law enforcement. And we look at Canada, we can't say the same. So uh, the solution is, there's there's documents in front of Parliament, the sitting government saying, you can do what Australia has done within Canada's legal framework. Go do it. (laughs) That's the solution. It's as simple as that for me.
0: Well, Sam, thank you again for joining us. Once again, the book is Willful Blindness. I'll put a link below. But uh, for anyone watching, where else can they follow you?
1: Uh, They can follow me on uh, Twitter at Scooper Cooper on Twitter, uh, and they can watch for my journalism uh, coming out on the Internet, as they say.
0: All right. Well, thanks. It's it never feels right to say it's been a pleasure on this podcast. <laughs> uh, it's been enlightening.
1: Thanks, matter. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thanks again, Sam. Thank you. You know, it always amazes me how like all these different pieces kind of end up coming together. It is like that conspiracy theory guy, you know, that meme or oh, right, like. I was guy, just
2: thinking about the guy with the, the yeah, all thread. the things, and they come yeah. it
0: comes together, and it's CCP at the center of that. Oh, yeah. It really is accurate.
2: I mean, when you're reading the book, it reads like a thriller. You know what I mean? It's just uh-huh. like all this crazy stuff that's it's happening. Canada. <laughs> <laughs> I tell mean, you what. I mean, a lot of it goes back to before, you know, any of us were doing reporting on China. It goes back to the 70s, 80s, 90s. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy about all the things that had to happen for Vancouver to become this narco hub, essentially. They had to have you know suddenly relaxed their immigration standards in the 90s so mm. that you didn't have to have papers to come to Canada literally wow. there's one scene in the book where this guy just flushes his passport down the toilet of the plane because he's like he can just get he can just come and declare who he is and say that he wants to declare refugee status wow uh, and then like the thing that Sam was talking about with like suddenly they introduced baccarat and mm-hmm. like then they had no limits on the 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 amount of money for high stakes gambling. Just like all these pieces that the CCP then came in and took advantage of. Jeez.
3: Yeah, no, it's 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 pretty insane. And also that like the casinos in Canada are run by the government. Yeah, that's
0: also super.
2: Well, I mean, weird. That was weird to me, too, but it's essentially through kind of how, you know u s. states have those lotteries that are run by states. Mm-hmm. So in Canada, the lottery corporations for their provincial governments also run casinos.
3: I mean, I think it's weird that the lottery in the United States is run by state governments. but, you know,
2: you know, it's a good way to make money off of the look, if lawn. the
3: government wants to steal our money, they can just raise taxes
0: or create inflation.
2: ah. <laughs>
3: Yes, well, tax on the lower and middle class,
2: just like lotteries.
3: There we go. Mm. It's it's a perfect system.
2: Well, casinos apparently is. I mean, even if these guys lose some money at the casinos, right? It's worth it. If you you've got to get like five million dollars out of China, yeah. When
0: you have a fifty thousand dollar limit,
2: right? Yeah, and it, then you got to lose like one percent at a casino. In yeah, Canada. I mean, baccarat
3: you might lose like two or three percent. Yeah, but that's just like. The, the fee for doing business yeah
2: you know i remember us doing this episode about money laundering in macau through right. the casinos
3: remember this matt this- i do remember that uh because because i did most of the writing for that and it was and i did when i was researching it i was kind of shocked at how like they've developed this intricate system of like mainlanders that, and, and they had this kind of like um uh hawala system uh also where they they give money to like a Chinese uh, travel company. And then the travel company gives them like free casino chips. And then the casino chips are used when they get to Macau and they play Baccarat and then they get the money out in Hong Kong dollars or U.S. dollars or or British pounds. Or wasn't there like
2: different casino chips that they can exchange them for? Right. Like you
3: can, there are, there are casino chips that you have to play and there's casino chips that you can redeem. Like they kind of use that system. Like, You get the you you buy the casino chips that you have to play, but you can spend as as much Chinese RMB as you want on that. Now that system is designed for money laundering through Hong Kong and Macau, but the one that Sam was talking about is money laundering through like directly through criminal or I mean they're all it's all criminal, right? But like directly through these organizations, where RMB goes in in China, Canadian dollars come out in Canada, and then the casinos help you take the bags of dirty cash and pull it out as, you know, legitimate winnings.
2: I mean, it's so much easier having than having to exchange chips and whatever. You just go in with hockey bags of 20s.
0: That was a very Canadian-specific reference.
2: Yeah, I mean, just, yeah, <laughs> that as well. Hockey bags are large is what I'm getting from that. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I mean, it's just a crazy story, that's happening in Vancouver, which you think of as. I mean, have you been to Vancouver?
3: Yeah, I've been to Vancouver.
2: I mean, it's it's basically like San Francisco, right? It's, you know, a beautiful port city, beautiful weather, you know, mild on the West Coast. And you're like, oh, yeah, this is a great place to live. And apparently, no, it's like the fentanyl capital at Narco Hub. You just.
0: A hive of scum and villainy.
2: And uh, where Meng Wanzhou is currently, uh, you know, waiting oh, out yeah. her oh, I, I'm house I'm sure that's oh, yeah. just
3: a coincidence. That's totally not connected in any way.
2: All of her all of her houses in Vancouver. Yeah. Definitely oh.
3: definitely no connection at all.
2: I was thinking about that when he was talking about the Canadian government being weak on Huawei and stuff like, you know. Yeah. Yeah.
3: We
0: need to create that conspiracy charge,
2: <laughs> linking
0: everything <laughs> up. That actually, uh, that's... I think in the that's merchandise right there.
2: In the book, Sam talks about this police source giving this guy who worked for the the casinos this conspiracy chart, essentially that had like all the different like tycoons, money laundering kingpins. Like, yeah, they they
3: call it a conspiracy theory until one day it turns out to be investigative journalism. Yeah.
0: Thanks, Sam, for doing that. It is a fantastic book. I, I highly recommend checking it out.
2: Yeah, I can't wait for the, uh, you know, Amazon series. <laughs> They're not going to do that. No. They'd have to film it in Vancouver.
0: Why would they not film in Vancouver?
2: Oh, I mean, Vancouver is just a place where there's a lot of people go there to film instead of L.A. Because it's tax cheaper. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, got it. But, you know, it's not very flattering to Vancouver, is it? No. P- perhaps not and also you know all the chinese companies that all the people in hollywood want to do business with and okay here's another conspiracy charge
3: yeah oh
0: yeah we're, we're gonna make that I, I promise that's a good one and today's podcast is sponsored by daily peanut if you're tired of us talking for an hour and want some short entertaining news stories subscribe to daily peanut it's a bunch of fast, timely news stories selected for you and available to read on your phone, tablet, or computer. Reading Daily Peanut is an easy way to filter out the noise and learn more about the world news that matters. Join more than 250,000 other readers. Education and entertainment delivered right in your inbox every morning. And the best part is, it's free. So sign up for Daily Peanut now. Use the link in the description below. Once again, I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Jong And I'm Matt Gnaizda. We'll talk to you next time. We'll uh-huh.